This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we are going to talk about how the evangelical population of the United States, which has been a mainstay of American society for a long time, how this population has changed and is changing, and what those changes mean for American democracy. We're joined by uh, a friend and uh, a really terrific scholar who's been on our podcast before, uh, Dr. Daniel Hummel. Daniel, uh, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be with uh, both of you. Dr. Hummel is the director for university engagement at Upper House, which is a Christian study center serving the University of Wisconsin-Madison, particularly serving the students at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, he's a very uh, highly regarded author of books on the history of uh, American evangelicals and their relationship to policy, as well as the theology and intellectual work surrounding that topic. His first book, which was actually his dissertation that I was uh, a part of as he was writing it, I got to learn from him as he did his research and, and wrote this wonderful dissertation, which became his first book. The first book is titled Covenant Brothers, Evangelicals, Jews, and U.S.-Israel Relations. Uh, his second book, uh, which came out, uh, I think, about a year ago, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, how the evangelical battle over the end times shaped a nation. We discussed that book and the theology surrounding dispensationalism on a prior episode of This is Democracy about six months ago. And Daniel has written and continues to write frequently on religion, on politics, on foreign policy. He writes for the Washington Post. He writes for Christianity Today, for the Religion News Service, and for many, many other outlets. He also writes quite a lot of book reviews, uh, book reviews that really place uh, the questions around religion and American history in a valuable context, I think, for all of us who care about our democracy. So we're very well served to have Dan on the podcast with us today. Before we turn to our discussion about the nature of our evangelical population in the United States, we have, of course, uh, Mr. Zachary's scene-setting poem. What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? If Your God is a God of Truth. If Your God is a God of Truth. Okay, let's hear it. If Your God is a God of Truth, I will gladly read your book of Ruth and walk with you to freedom. And if Your God is a God of Light, I will join you, I will join the fight for a future filled with freedom. If your God is a God of life, I will walk with you the fields of strife in search of a place called peace. And if your God is a God of hope, I will wash my hands with a bitter soap and follow the path of peace. If your God is a God of right, I will bow before an awesome might that points its way to love. And if your God is a God of dreams, I will write mine down in paper rings and see the way to love. Yes, if your God is a God of love, I will follow you like a turtle dove until we find Elysium. But if your God is a God of hate, I think I'll stick around and wait until I find an answer. So have you figured out if, if your God is a God of truth, Zachary? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you put it out there. <laughs> well, I don't really think that's the, the, the point of the poem. It's more about um, the ways in which religion can be uh, misused um, for for um, hate and for division, 
um, but also about the many possibilities of religion as a way towards love, towards peace, uh, towards life, towards hope, all of these things that religion promises, um, but also the, the danger of it being misused or mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. turned uh, to towards uh, into into something that divides us. As a right, right, right. And and in a sense, this is uh, this has been with us in American history from the first yes. days, from before there was a United States. These questions at front and center, whether we're talking about John Winthrop, whether we're talking about early Jewish settlers, early Muslim Americans, these questions have been front and center. Um, Dan, before we get into the discussing how the evangelical community in the United States has changed. I think it would be helpful to have your definition of what an evangelical is. Ooh, that's a, that's a million dollar question. Uh, that's one that uh, scholars of evangelicalism in a, in a number of fields. So you think of historians, sociologists, maybe even religious studies scholars have their own way of defining it. Um, as a historian, uh, I don't totally agree with this definition, but this is the one that is most commonly cited uh, it was offered by a historian named David Bebbington, who studies actually British evangelicalism, but his definition, which is known as the Bebbington quadrilateral, um, okay. is is the one that, that until, I would say, until the last few years has been the dominant one. And that quadrilateral obviously has four uh, characteristics or features of what an evangelical is. And those are um, uh, evangelicals uh, center their faith on the Bible, so biblicism. They are uh, focused on the cross or the crucifixion of Jesus as the atoning work that saves people, so cruciocentrism. They believe in conversions as the sign of salvation, so conversionism. And then uh, the fourth is activism, or the idea that the way Christian faith is expressed is through action, and that is often um, evangelism, of spreading the the gospel, the the good news to others. So that that Bebbington quadrilateral has been the dominant view for um, for a long time, and I, I think there's a lot to that. I think each one of those things I listed has uh, obviously evangelicals aren't the only Christians to you know care about the Bible or, or other things, but where you find all four of these active, you're probably looking at an evangelical. And one of the big strengths of this definition is it it applies over time, so we can talk about. Uh, 18th century revivals, the First Great Awakening, uh, people like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, and we, then we can see a continuity through evangelicals today. But I would say a lot of scholars in more recent years, and a lot of this you can date to you know 2015, 2016, and the emergence of Donald Trump and the close association uh, of evangelical support uh, for Trump that's been made in in a lot of analysis is there's been a pushback on this definition, which doesn't really get into cultural and political uh, uh, issues or stakes. And a lot more recent uh, focus has been on uh, cultural and political positions that evangelicals uh, hold or people who call themselves evangelicals seem to hold uh, together. So whether this is a focus on issues like uh, abortion or uh, opposition to same-sex marriage, um, or if it's uh, sort of positions on immigration or economics, uh, these are maybe more cultural or political fa- factors that, at least sociologically, when you poll evangelicals, they seem to be quite uniform on these views as well. And so I'm someone as a historian who does really uh, want to think about evangelicals in a longer history. I, I tend to try to merge these together, but um, 
but I, I think it's hard it's hard to stick to only the Bebbington quadrilateral here in 2024 when there is an obvious a uh, lot more going on, particularly among American evangelicals, uh, than that would capture uh, the, those those just particular theological um, commitments. Is this direct connection between uh, evangelical religion and American politics uh, a new phenomenon, or is it is it something that has sort of defined a, a lot of our political discourse for for a long time? Yeah, evangelicals. Uh, it's particularly if you take uh, someone like David Bebbington. You know, the evangelicals have been around for about three hundred years, and and there there's always been uh, in a North American component to evangelicalism, but. Uh, as we talk about the term today, evangelicals are, are a global religious community that is much bigger than the United States. And it's always important uh, for Americans to remember that. That most, I mean, if, if you were to use a definition like Bebbington's, the vast majority of evangelicals today are in the global South and are, are you know, in, in much different contexts than, than even North American, Western Europe. But in American politics, the, the close association between evangelicals and conservative politics uh, goes, it's, it's largely a 20th century story. Uh, some of it has to do with the fundamentalist movement, which is where modern evangelicalism tends to trace its roots. Fundamentalists in the 1920s were very much active in the public square on issues like um, uh, opposition to, to teaching of evolution in school. In public schools, they were quite uh, against uh, feminism. They were quite against communism. Um, and then in the 1970s, you really get a, a much bigger focus in, in the broader media on evangelicals. 1976 was uh, so-called the year of uh, the evangelical. It was when you had Jimmy Carter running for president, who turns out to have a much different politics than what we think of evangelicals today. But, but Carter really paved the way for talking about being a born again Christian and how that influenced his politics. And uh, many presidential candidates since Carter have claimed to be born again or claimed to be evangelical and wanted to tap into this emerging, uh, or at least in the 70s, emerging political uh, classification that was up until that point seemingly more of a religious classification, but became associated with Republican Party politics and particularly these, these social issues like abortion. Uh, or um, opposition to homosexuality, um, or as I've written about, uh, support for the state of Israel. And right. so uh, when, we th when we think about that association today, it's around a 50-year-old association between evangelicals and the Republican Party in the U.S. And, and most of us as historians, and, and here I draw on your work as well as the work of, of many others, Dan, most of us see uh, a, an up swing of evangelical expression and uh, participation in American society after World War II, particularly in the 1950s. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. You can see a lot of, um, you know, some some scars, I think, of, of a diplomatic historian, actually, Seth Jacobs, who calls the 1950s uh, a great awakening. I think he calls it the third great awakening. And right. that's because people like uh, Billy Graham, who is the, you know, par, the, the evangelical par excellence, um, becomes a household name for all Americans, not just evangelical Christians. And Billy Graham is the, you could say, the tip of the spear of a much broader, much bigger uh, in institutional structure of evangelical parachurch organizations, nonprofits, universities and colleges, and of course, churches and related organizations that are emerging after World War II, really, uh, really wanting to engage with 
the broader American culture, and that includes American politics. So Billy Graham is is probably the the tip of that, but you can think of more, um, you could say in some ways more uh, extreme or more fundamentalistic figures like Billy James Hargis, who uh, is is very active in anti-communism, um, and and many other figures who uh, are are engaging with politicians, are actually running for office themselves at, at certain points, and are also able to shape the broader political culture. Uh, you think of someone like Dwight Eisenhower, who yes. um, is very eager to associate himself with Billy Graham, eager to identify himself as a church-going person when he wasn't really a church-going person before being president. But there's a lot of cachet in the broader political culture for associating with Christianity at that point, or, or religion, but more specifically, an evangelical brand of Christianity that becomes uh, really, really potent. And and in some ways, up until the 1970s, as we were talking about, um, is is somewhat bipartisan. There's a there's a desire, as much among certain Democrats, to uh, particularly in the South, to identify with this uh, tradition. But as time goes on, there's a very clear uh, Republican uh, potency to the evangelical subculture. And I think that's a wonderful foundation for the rest of our conversation, because in a sense, that that's the, the legacy of post-war evangelical expression that I grew up with. My generation that came of age in the, in the 80s grew up with, right? It was this perception that evangelicals, maybe this perception was outdated even at that moment, but nonetheless, it was the perception that evangelicals were church-going and that there were major figures like Billy Graham, who was the biggest of all of them, as you said, meeting with every single president until, until the end of Billy Graham's uh, life, mm-hmm. that, that there were these figures who were pastors and religious leaders of this community, and those who were in this community were spreading the good news, but they were doing it as part of an organized movement to some extent, and they had church-going and church leaders who were, as you said, the tip of the spear that seems to have changed in the last few years. Is that correct, Dan? Yes, I, th- I think it's a lot has changed, and one of the, one of the things that's changed is there's been there's emerged a, a sort of new class of evangelical leaders who are not coming out of explicitly religious organizations. You could say so. Take one example of someone who's been really important in the last few decades, Ralph Reed, who's been at the the center of organizing evangelicals politically since the 1980s, and particularly he was really important in the 1990s with the Christian Coalition, which uh, was led by someone named Pat Robertson, who was a televangelist and, and a pastor. But Ralph Reed was really the, the person who was, who was working and organizing the Christian Coalition. Reed does not have, he, didn't, he doesn't come out of a ministry background, and he, his, his authority comes from being a political actor. And yet, when he talks, he is talking in an entirely evangelical language, and he is invoking the same theological and religious language that evangelicals pa- pastors would. But his authority is around access to power in Washington D.C., and then within D.C., his ability to organize, you know, evangelical voters on the ground. And Reed is probably one of the better known of, but of a whole class of evangelical leaders that have emerged that are really much more about organizing politically than they are about uh, any type of explicit religious activity. And that's a that's a largely recent phenomenon. You could date it to the 80s, but it really emerges in the 90s um, and, and is now a major part of the way evangelicals relate to uh, relate to politics. You can just imagine, j- just think of um, the average evangelical. And we might imagine in a vacuum that 
the way an evangelical in Iowa, we could say, since we're um, right here in, in primary season, you know, who are they looking to to form their opinions about candidates, about issues, uh, maybe even deeper things, or just about commitments or principles that they're going to live by? I think we'd imagine that it would be their pastor and the Bible and maybe some supplementary material or something like that. But we often don't think of someone like Ralph Reed as someone who's actually shaping the you know fundamental beliefs of evangelicals. But as as time has gone on, you know, in the last few decades, we've realized that actually those people are quite important. They often have access to the average evangelical more than their pastors do. And they are very media savvy. And so in some ways, you know, an average evangelical might be spending dozens of hours a week listening to very politically plugged in evangelicals. And they're listening to their pastor for you know a couple hours a week on on Sundays, and and this is one of the keys to understanding how evangelicals, uh, how the, how even the definition of evangelicalism has turned much more political than theological in recent years. Uh, according to Pew, and and you've seen these studies and seen more of them than I have, but according to Pew and a number of other studies that I've read, uh, Americans as a whole are going to church less, and evangelicals are going to church less. Is that correct? Yes. Um, yeah, certainly for, uh, for Americans, uh, that, that might be the easier one to tackle. We've, we've seen church decline uh, ever since the 1960s. And that was probably the peak of, of church going actually in American history. It's interesting. In some ways, um, the, the church attendance rate today is actually not that much different from a century ago. And so if you take the really long view, there isn't, uh, you, you might just think of it a little differently. You might interpret it differently. But if you take a 50 year view, it's been, a, a, a steady decline. We're right around uh, 30 to 35 percent of Americans uh, now attend uh, uh, regularly uh, church. And it's actually interesting since COVID, a number of the polling agencies have actually had to redefine what regular attendance is, and they've defined it down because uh, most people are going, even, even the so-called regular attenders are going to church um, instead of, I think the, the old definition that was widely used was something like three times a month. And I think they've reduced it to two times a month because if they were to keep it at three times, they would just be a, 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 an entire bottoming out of right. that, of that practice. Um, but so yeah, that's happening across the board. That's not even just an evangelical phenomenon. That's across all religious traditions. Um, among evangelicals, this is a really interesting thing is, is, uh, self-defined evangelicals are going to church less. And so we might imagine that, um, uh, church attendance is almost a unspoken, assumed, crucial part of what it means to be an evangelical Christian, because this is the primary way you'd engage with other evangelicals in some type of formal setting. You're all attending church, worshiping together, listening to a sermon together. But, but what we see is that there's plenty of evangelicals, more and more, who will continue to respond to a pollster and say they are evangelical, but will not sort of uh, do the same practices that we've always assumed evangelicals do. One of them is church attendance. Another was is prayer. Another is giving to your, um, often giving to your church, but giving to some type of uh, charity or, or other organization. All these things are going down, and even as the self-identification of evangelicalism has actually remained quite steady for the last uh, decade or so. And th that's the big puzzle that a lot of people are trying to unpack is why are why isn't that, if all these uh, signs of being evangelical are dropping, why aren't people actually not identifying less with the term evangelical? And that's where the, the politics comes in and where evangelicalism, what many people mean by that now, has very little to do with anything Bebbington was talking about and much more to do with a particular set of political and cultural stances 
that are really popular in in conservative politics today. How might this deinstitutionalization of evangelical religion affect not just evangelical politics or the relationship between evangelicals and evangelical religion, but our politics itself? Uh, and, and and I'm thinking in particular of the election in 2024 that we're approaching and, and the primary season that we're almost already in the midst of. Well, I think one thing it's going to do, it's going to just exacerbate is this sense that there are the the tastemakers, the influencers that are going to shape evangelical thinking about politics are going to be more and more people who don't have obvious institutional power centers. And that can be everyone from uh, a YouTuber who gets really popular and a bunch of evangelicals are listening to that person and, and whatever uh, their views are to... Um, uh, to broader, you know, cultural influences that are going to uh, be the things that dictate what it means to be an evangelical, and then what the you know so-called right view of something is based on that evangelical um, identity. I think one thing that churches have tended to do uh, well, um, at least in, at their best moment, is to tend to be spaces where evangelicals can come together and think together about important issues. And maybe they don't always land where other people want them to land, but there usually is a sense of a communal reasoning toward, um, uh, toward a, a position on, on immigration or uh, prayer in school or wh whatever the, the hot topic is. Because less evangelicals are going to church today, uh, fewer evangelicals are, um, that type of communal aspect to politics is not happening. At least it's not happening within churches. It might be happening with, within explicitly conservative uh, political spaces or within even Republican Party spaces, but it's not happening. It won't be happening as much within churches. And um, and that, that, that creates a different dynamic to who gets to speak, who gets to sort of decide who's in and out of those con of those conversations. And it ultimately, I think, uh, means that there's actually less gathering altogether among evangelicals. And there's a lot more um, individual or, or maybe you could say family-based reasoning toward these things. One of the things that evangelicalism is known for is for its tendency toward individualism, uh, toward a, even in the conception of, of the Babington quadrilateral, all of these things around reading the Bible about a conversion experience, these are individual um, relationships between you and God. And so leaving evangelicals to their own devices, they tend to be individualistic and they tend to idealize the individual and, and the politics that would come from that idealization. Attending church, being part of, of, of third, uh, third spaces or, you know, sort of a, a thicker uh, social scene has tended to be the balance to that. But as those, as there's a deinstitutionalization happening in evangelicalism, I think you're going to see those tendencies that are embedded within the tradition express themselves even more because there isn't that check on them. That traditionally there has been. It, it's so interesting to hear you describe this, Dan, and you describe it so vividly, um, because as a historian and as someone who's not an evangelical, I'm, I'm obviously not one, um, it, it sounds as if the changes in the sociology of evangelicals today, the changes in their behaviors, their attitudes, their self-identification, they sound less traditionally religious. I think of religion in American history as, you know, what Tocqueville found as he was going across the country in the early 19th century. Church attendance, people quoting and citing the Bible, 
many of the things that are in the Bevington quadrilateral, whether the, mm-hmm. whether these were evangelicals or not that he was talking about. The way you've described uh, where evangelicals are today, at least to me, sounds sounds less religious. And I'm, I'm sure that's an unfair characterization, so I'd love to hear your reaction to that. Well, I, th- I think for uh, for a segment of evangelicals, I think that is true. I think you can actually see a secularization of what the term means. And, um, you know, you, you even see this in the issues that are um, that, that are most important in polling to evangelicals today. And so if you if you just rewind even a few decades, the top issues would be abortion and same-sex marriage. If you go you know, to the 90s, those are the issues that if you polled evangelicals, they would say are the most important issues, the issues that should define what it means to be an evangelical voter. You should always vote you know, in, in support of evangelicals' views on, on these issues. If you poll the evangelicals today, they actually don't care about those issues as much. They care more about immigration and the economy. And, um, and that is a, a remarkable change for a group that, um, uh, were, were seemingly, at least on the surface are the same people over those decades. But I think that part of the, the key to understanding this is it's actually not the same people. Donald Trump and other developments in the last uh, few decades have, have done a sorting that is hard to, um, see on the surface where a lot of, uh, evangelicals, uh, from the nineties and two thousands have disaffiliated from that term. Um, I am in, I, I will call myself an evangelical though. I want to, I often want to qualify what that means. And even that, you know, even my own struggles with that show that the, the term means something different than it meant a few decades ago, but there's, there's a ton of, of one-time evangelicals who have disaffiliated. And then there's a large number of even of, of new evangelicals of, of people who have taken on that label in the last decade who have done so because they like the political positions that they associate with evangelicalism far more than the religion or the theology or the church practices that come with it. And so um, because that has happened, and we, we know this has happened, we've, it, 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 was, it was something that people had to discover uh, sociologically and historically, uh, but, but um, the Trump phenomenon has helped uh, people turn attention to that. Um, there's a term that some sociologists use uh, of political evangelicals, evangelicals who adopt the term purely for the politics. Um, we know that's happened. And so there has been a secularization of the term that makes it very confusing actually to talk about it because there are still evangelicals who largely define that themselves on theological terms. And then there's a whole nother group who define themselves on the political terms. And there's of course, a lot of people who would do both and who see both as implicating each other. And so it's a very confusing, uh, a very confusing landscape right now that takes a lot of sorting out and nuancing just to even try to understand uh, what's going on on the ground. But, but I guess coming back to my question, and this is something, Dan, you and I have talked about repeatedly over the years, mm-hmm. um, because it fascinates me and I think it fascinates you and you have far more background in this than I do. Um, to what extent can we say people are mo- motivated by religion or to what extent are what you're describing sounds sometimes to me like people who have decided they want to take a political position for whatever reason, and then are more justifying it by contortions of, of theological argument. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think, I, and we, yeah, we have talked about a lot, a lot about this, Jeremy. And I think, I think um, I've definitely um, moved from a position maybe a decade ago or more where I really didn't want to even contemplate that. And that's part of my own biases as a, as a practicing evangelical that, um, that, uh, you know, people 
um, are are ultimately driven by these you know deep religious convictions, and then there's a there's a political implication to them. I think ultimately, I think it's it's a very I guess I was trying to paint the picture as quite complicated. I think you're right. I think there's a lot of people um, who who maybe not even cynically take on they they believe this is what an evangelical is. An evangelical is someone who is pro-life, uh, anti-abortion, who opposes uh, same-sex marriage, who wants a, a stronger immigration policy. And that's really what they think an evangelical is. And I think there's been a, a leadership class that has really encouraged that way of thinking. And it's largely that leadership class I was talking about, though there are plenty of pastors who have um, moved that way as well. And there's a there's a big advantage to um, uh, evangelical politics if more and more evangelicals see the expression of their faith the most authentic expression of their faith being voting uh, for these issues more than other parts, uh, other practices that you might think are more obviously uh, religious or evangelical. Um, but I, I think it's really hard to actually disentangle these things in in um, in, a, in a broader sense. Maybe you can on a micro level, and you can see certain people who are much more cynical in their use of evangelical language and concepts because they really are they really have a certain politics that they're trying to push and the best, most effective way to push it is to cloak it in evangelical language. I think you can probably find a lot of specific examples of that. But when you zoom back out and you see it as sort of an ecosystem uh, in a macro level, I think it's hard to see, it's hard to discern where the theology ends and where the politics begins. And I'm not even sure if that's the right way to, to say that, but there seems to be a dialectic there that would be really hard, at least at this point, uh, to disentangle. Though we do have a lot of examples, um, there are uh, anomalous or, or minority examples of evangelicals who dissent from the uh, conservative, uh, the, the move in evangelical politics toward a, a sort of uh, embrace of Trump and conservatism. There's plenty of examples of people who've rejected that, um, but they, they are the minority. But they do stand out and show that there are, there are other ways that evangelical commitments on a theological or religious level can lead to a different type of politics than the one that the majority of the community has embraced recently. So with that note, how, um, how, how are Republican politicians in particular, uh, and, 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 and politicians who try to appeal to these, uh, particular self-identified evangelical voters navigating this changing religious landscape? Uh, for me in particular, it's been fascinating to watch, uh, this play out, uh, in the, uh, early primary elections. Uh, that will shape uh, the Republican uh, primary process, in particular in states like Iowa and New Hampshire. Well, the first thing just to acknowledge is that the vast, or not the vast majority, but a majority of evangelicals support Trump uh, in polling. And so he's not even, you know, he's not in the debates. He's just, you know, he's barely um, campaigning. He is now in Iowa. But uh, that that's one thing that Republican politicians have had to navigate is that there is this lockstep with about right now the polling is around 55 to 60 percent of evangelical white evangelical voters support Trump in the primaries. And so um, you're already talking about a dynamic that was, you know, it was not in in existence before 2015, uh, 2016. And for the remaining, you know, 45 percent, which is what uh, people like Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are jockeying for. One of the things they try to do is they try to appeal to evangelicals by um, doing what I mentioned just a few minutes ago, which is by emphasizing issues that they see as resonant with polling 
with evangelicals today. And though the, the interesting thing is those tend not to be the same issues that were of interest even a few years ago for evangelicals. And so you hear a lot about the economy and inflation. Maybe that's, I mean, that's most Americans care about that to some extent. So that, that might not be unique to evangelicals. It's also immigration and, um, and, and the curbing immigration. Uh, that is a major issue that evangelicals have had a, a, a largely conservative view on that for decades, but it was never seen as sort of the hot button issue. There were, there were other culture issues that uh, were much more important to evangelicals. And you can think of someone like Ron DeSantis, who's really emphasized his culture war bona fides as governor of Florida and the way that uh, he will be the person that can sort of stand up to the progressive left. That's the type of rhetoric that's going to at least they think is going to appeal to evangelicals in in Iowa and elsewhere. Um, but what they are not doing is they tend to not emphasize um, their deep, their personal deep religious piety, which is something that traditionally evangelicals cared a lot about. Right. Uh, we know Ron DeSantis is a Catholic and that he's a family man, but he, that, that's not usually the thing he leads with. Um, and we know Nikki Haley uh, has, has her own, um, a faith background as well, but she she tends to not lead with that as well. Um, and we also know that most evangelicals, when polled, think Donald Trump is a religious person as well. And so, um, uh, and he obviously doesn't do a lot uh, beyond uh, rhetoric to show that he doesn't attend church regularly or or do other activities that would uh, indicate that. And so, it's a much different. In in I think it's this is going back to. Jeremy's observation, it's a much more secular way of trying to appeal to evangelicals than the historical way um, that even earlier Republican politicians did. When people like Ronald Reagan, who also had problems, uh, at least on, on the surface, with identifying with evangelicals, he was, uh, he, he was divorced, he was a Hollywood actor, he didn't have a strong history of uh, going to church or, or sort of speaking in a, in a really definitive religious way. Reagan did a lot of overt things in the 1976 election where he ran in the Republican primary or the 1980 election to really signal the evangelicals that he was one of them. He would pray with them. He would um, quote from the Bible extensively. He would attend churches a lot. That's how you traditionally appeal to evangelicals it, to show that you were, uh, if not one of them, then at least sympathetic to them. Much of that has gone out the window, except in a very pro forma way. And it's much been more about appealing to these uh, conservative uh, policy positions or culture, sort of culture war talking points that evangelicals do hold, but are are also shared by um, a broader set of Republicans. That's such an insightful uh, comment, uh, Dan, because you know I think back not that long ago to when George W. Bush was president, and there's no doubt that what you described as the more traditional way of evangelicals appealing to voters or appealing to evangelical voters was the tack that um, George W. Bush took, right? He, he prayed mm -hmm. in public. He talked very explicitly about his own born-again experience, right? Mm -hmm. And the prayer breakfasts in Washington, D.C., as you know, became much more common. They became mandatory for those in the Bush administration. Uh, that, that's night and day from where Donald Trump is uh, today, which is, which is so extraordinary. I mean, I guess the big question um, that that in a sense we want to close on, though I think we also do want to ask you about about students because you have the opportunity to see this uh, among students. We'll come to that one next, but before that last question, why has this shift occurred? I know that's that's a, a podcast unto itself, but 
give us your, your, your top reason for why we've seen such a shift away from what might be the traditional tone, attitude, and content of public expression by evangelicals in the United States. Yeah, that is a that is a, a whole podcast unto its own. I think um, you know. I think there is something to really tracing this emerging class of leaders that are political animals more than religious animals that have that in some ways now lead the evangelical movement, and and um, and there, there's been a lot a lot written about that. I also think it's also it's really important to remember some key features of evangelicalism as a religious movement that aren't all sh- that aren't shared by all other Christians and certainly not all, all other religions. Evangelicalism is highly decentralized. There is no um, there is no pope. There is no even uh, council of people who dictate much at all to a broader evangelical world. And so the world of evangelicalism since uh, well, maybe going all the way back, but certainly since the nineties and the rise of the internet has been, you know, celebrity driven. And you can see this even earlier with televangelists and the amount of influence that they would gain. And even before that radio, uh, figures, but, uh, certainly since the internet, there's been a whole sort of celebrity culture around evangelicalism. Um, there, uh, uh, uh one observer, Sky Jathani calls it the e- evangelical industrial complex. That is really what produces celebrity in evangelicalism, and that celebrity actually carries a lot of political and cultural power as well. And that, that's been an emergence in recent decades as well. And then I, I think it's also important to remember that evangelicals are Americans like uh, like other Americans, and there's been a massive decline in trust in institutions across the board. And uh, churches have actually fared slightly better than other institutions like Congress and the presidency, but but not by much. And so there's been a hollowing out of most of our institutions in American society and churches have been so central to so many uh, Christians and uh, and that that their decline means that there is a much different culture around evangelicalism uh, even if there are still churches um, w- how those churches actually influence and to use a, a Christian term form or shape the people in the pews, is is much different and and much lessened than it than it has been in the past, and so I think those those things come together into a stew that means um, that that evangelicalism as a movement is is experiencing a lot of change, a lot of churn, you could say, a lot of people exiting and other people entering, and as that process continues, it only uh, exacerbates the trends that we see already to where. Um, uh, the evangelicalism of the 2030s will probably look somewhat different than even the 2020s. And um, and that's where, you know, definitions like the Bebbington definition that is intended to try to capture everything from the 18th century up to the 21st century, those types of definitions are going to experience even more strain as the very group that we're trying to talk about, even if they're going under the same name dec- decade after decade, um, is really much different and has a much different set of priorities than uh, than we would talk about historically. That makes a lot of sense, and that brings so many things together. So we 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 do want to close, Dan. Then with asking you to maybe just share with us, if if you're comfortable, some of how you see these larger dynamics that we've discussed, how you see them playing out with with the younger Christians, because you're in a really unique position 
uh, at Upper House, uh, which I know uh, is an, an organization doing extraordinary work uh, to help students at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, I assume most of, or not most, but many of your students have evangelical backgrounds or mm-hmm. are connected to this. So how do you see this playing out with the next generation? Yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, you know, one one obvious trend is a a discomfort with the term evangelical for Gen Z and even uh, millennial evangelicals. um, Many of them don't hold to the same social, cultural, political positions as the the leading evangelicals in the country do. And so there's a hesitancy to even associate with the term, but many of them still do. And and there you still see a much different relationship to, um, to other institutions and to politics in particular. You know, there, there's particular issues that are very dis- distinctly important to younger evangelicals that for a long time have been not associated with evangelicalism at all. Uh, one of them is in sort of care, concern for the environment and, and um, you know, belief that global warming or climate change is real. Um, there's a lot of skepticism of that when you pull evangelicals, and particularly if you pull evangelicals over the age of, say, 40 um, there's a lot of skepticism. Younger evangelicals, and of course, I, well, in polling, younger evangelicals overall do um, believe the science uh, much more on this. Uh, at Upper House, we're in a particular context at a university. Um, the students there tend to, you know, listen to their professors and and believe what their professors are saying. So I certainly I don't believe that at all. I've never seen that. <laughs> Actually, that's true. Maybe they don't believe everything, but they certainly um, are open to. Um, ideas like uh, climate change or, or the science of climate change being being real. So uh, we see an openness to that. I mean, the one issue I study a lot is evangelical support for Israel. And this is one where generationally it's very stark that uh, evangelicals under the age of 40 really um, don't support Israel more than the U.S. population in general does. And that's a big change from where um, evangelicals have been for a long time, where they've been far out ahead of of the averages in supporting Israel. And in fact, younger evangelicals uh, uh, talk much more in a, you could say, a social justice uh, language than their elders. And so actually have a lot of concern about, um, uh, about uh, Palestinians, about occupation in the West Bank and, and other issues that um, that, uh, that are, are related. And so on a lot of different issues, younger evangelicals are much different than their parents. And one of the questions will be, will those even, will those younger evangelicals, um, decide to somehow stick with the movement and reform it or change it from within, or will they be pushed out or leave and either affiliate with other types of Christian traditions or leave Christianity Altogether, we know also that there are just fewer younger evangelicals, um, uh, as Gen Z in particular is much less religious, at least in an organized sense. There's a lot of spirituality and, and other concerns, but in terms of embracing organized religion, um, they're much lower, and that's part of that distrust of institutions uh, trend as well. But that's going to be a question as well: is those those young people who do identify as evangelical, um, will they have the opportunities and the um, and be welcomed uh, at some point, at least, into leadership positions and into taking over institutions, or will they uh, ultimately leave because the the disconnect between what they understand evangelicalism to imp- to be to the implications of evangelicalism for their politics 
those if, if that's too different from their elders, they might just leave and go somewhere else. So it, we're right in a sort of an inflection point. I would say the, the 2020s are going to be a very interesting decade at the end of it to understand particularly where Gen Z lands on these things. Um, but I would say the the trends are pretty encouraging from Upper House. Uh, at Upper House's perspective, there's a very engaged, um, very um, passionate uh student body that really is looking for answers and and asking really good questions about the intersection of faith and religion and society and politics. Um, but uh, I, I always want to make sure I'm not confusing my micro uh, experience, my anecdotal experience with the broader experience. And when you look at the broader experience, there are a lot of open questions that uh, we will only know the answers to, you know, far into the future from now. Right, right. It, it, it's so interesting to have this conversation with you, Dan. It, it's relevant for our society today, but it also it gets at deeper questions about institutions, power, and participation in our, in our democracy, uh, which, of course, are at the core of what our podcast is, is about. I was thinking, as you were just describing the experience uh, at the University of Wisconsin at Upper House, I was thinking to my own experience as an undergraduate at Stanford uh, a few decades ago. I don't want to say how many decades ago. It embarrasses me now, but a few decades ago. And and my experience was, uh, and I'm going to ask Zachary then, you know, if this resonates with where he is today in college. But for me, my experience was the evangelical community among Stanford students, among Stanford undergraduates, was a very friendly, open community. I even went to some of their events, had some very good friends, some of whom you know as well, Dan, like my friend uh, Professor William Inboden and others who I met in that context. Um, but they always seemed to me, and this is a positive statement, they seemed to be one of the groups that was pro-institution, that was pro-establishment. And in some ways, I often felt jealous as a Jew that they seemed to have a, a closer connection to mainstream sources of power than we did. It's, it's very different from the anti-institutionalism mm -hmm. that that you've been describing so well to us here. It's almost the, the polar opposite of that, at least in my micro experience um, in the 1990s. Zachary, I wonder how you experienced this at, at Yale. Um, do you see the evangelical community, first of all, is it a major presence on campus? And how do you see its relationship to the issues we're discussing here on the national scale? Um, I don't, I, I mean, I, it could be my own ignorance or, 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 or blindness to these issues, but I don't, I don't see it as a major presence on campus. I mean, there's certainly a very large Christian population, um, across all denominations. Um, and there certainly are evangelicals on campus. Um, but I think that, uh, it, at least my guess would be that I think it's become much more of a, of a fight to, to get people to, to, to come back to religion as opposed to a sort of denominational, uh, conflict and I and so I think that there's more of a a sense a, a division between those who who identify self-identify as Christian or who are regular churchgoers uh, and those who are not uh, as opposed to a sort of a division within the Christian population on campus but that might be my own naivete or ignorance about these issues um but I do think that among young people on campus there is actually a lot of interest in religion um not just in how religion affects our world and our politics but also about personally interacting with and learning from religion. Um, and, and I think, for example, that, that religious studies, Jewish studies, uh, and, and American studies and sociology classes that touch on religion are some of the most popular and most uh, subscribed to courses on campus. Uh, so I think there is really a craving among young people to learn about how this 
religious history shapes our world, our country. Do you see it driven by some of the politics that Dan has described, or do you see it in a more in a in a less political form? I think on college campuses, there college campuses are a space where people can talk about religion in a less political way, and that um, I think that is really a space. It, it's seen as something that is a personal experience. Um, as, as an individual experience, uh, and it's something that, that, that is tied to how we are brought up, of course, and to where we're from as well, but also something that uh, a college campus um, offers a sort of mix of and, and a place to explore. Uh, and so I think it's less tied to the sort of polemics or the politics as it is in broader society. That, that's so interesting for me to hear you say that, especially uh, in the shadow of what's happening in the Middle East. I mean, it's wonderful that you can still feel there's a space on college campuses to talk about these issues without without it being all about which side you're on uh, in a war or a conflict like that. Uh, Dan, I think this affirms what you've said, and I think it, it, it also affirms why um, the University of Wisconsin and, and all of us are, are fortunate to have you in the role that you're in as, as a leading scholar of religion and American society to be in a position where you're not only doing research and, and pontificating about it, but actually interacting with the next generation of key actors. I mean, what, what, what a privilege you have in your job, Dan. Yes, I, I enjoy it a lot. And I always, um, I love interacting with students uh, precisely because of what ja Zachary said, that um, there are, there are very few spaces in our society where you can, you know, ask big questions and not be, and the answer not sort of putting you in a certain camp uh, right away. And I think universities at their best are those places, are one of those places where you can still do that. And and religion at its best, any religion, uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, whatever it is, at their best, they are trying to give uh, answers to some of the biggest questions about what it means to be human, uh, why are we here? What does it mean to live a good life? Uh, things that you know many of us were contemplating uh, or are contemplating when we're in college already. And at their best, the uh, the answers that religions are giving are very time tested. <laughs> Most of them are answers that have been contemplated for millennia, uh, if not longer. And uh, and so those should be in the mix of the conversation today that we're having at universities and. Um, and it's, it's great to be a part of a university like UW that, um, a university community, I should say, like UW that has created, uh, a context where, uh, religious perspectives are, um, are welcome, not always, not, not equally always, but, um, are part of the mix. And there's a pretty committed religious community that wants to engage with the university. Um, and, and at, their, at the best, at their best, I think that's where universities can really play a role that almost no other institution in our society can play for people in their teen, late teens, early twenties, where we know from polling, uh, what, whatever answers they come to during this period of their life often tend to be very sticky. Um, people do obviously change, uh, their minds after college, but it's one of the most formative periods for most people. And so it's in incumbent upon the institutions that are forming them uh, during this period of their life, that they do a good job and that they provide as many uh, avenues to ask these questions and then as many you know good, wise voices to offer answers uh, as they can. And that's what ultimately Upper House uh, wants to be a part of here, here in, in Madison, 
Um, but I will say just to just to you know close that observation is Yale does have we have a sister organization at Yale. It's called the Rivendell Institute. Um, it's it does a little different. It actually engages a lot of faculty at Yale as well. But um, I would guess I, I I know the director there. I haven't talked to him about this recently. But I would guess they they tend to not want to at least in the at, at the front you know d- uh, claim to be evangelical. Um, that that is such a toxic or polarizing term at in most university contexts right now um, that uh, even if the even if the theological commitments are evangelical there's a sense of that that's going to win you no know friends on most campuses to identify that way or it's going to just create a lot of misunderstanding or need to clarify before actually introducing yourself uh, and 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 actually being able to connect with people so my guess is that's actually happening a lot uh, across the country as well is that uh, people who um, on paper um, in their maybe even in their personal church commitments would be okay with the term evangelical understand that that's not the way to lead the conversation when you're trying to reach Gen Z in particular yeah yeah that's my perception at the University of Texas as well as well we have a very large um, Christian community of course and we have a very large I think equivalent of what upper house is I forget the name of it, but it's right right off of the main drag on campus, and they've just renovated a beautiful building. Uh, but they don't they don't do any. I've not seen anything that self identifies as evangelical, even though I'm sure that's a, a an important part of the community. So I, I think mm-hmm. what you're saying is probably true across campuses. I love the fact, Dan, that you were able to articulate for us one of the many values that universities provide. We're in a moment now also where, of course, universities are under attack in so many ways. Maybe some of these attacks are legitimate. Maybe some of them are not. We've talked about that a bit on the podcast as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I I think it's really important you've articulated one of the many ways in which universities are hothouses of democracy for people to think through their uh, religious identity as well as their political identity at a formative time in their lives. Um, We have been so fortunate, Dan, to have you uh, with us today. I want to encourage our listeners uh, who I'm sure want to hear more from you, Dan, to follow you. Uh, Daniel Hummel, as I said, is uh, Director for University Engagement at Opera House, a Christian Studies Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he's written a number of major books. I'm only going to just push his most recent book, uh, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, and he writes frequently in many uh, journals. Dan, uh, it's been great talking to you, and we hope to have you back on at some point soon. It's been a pleasure talking to you both. Zachary, thank you for your uh, thoughtful poem that got us started and for your excellent questions and reflections on your experience. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.